So I, I met uh, Tom through um, Ray Bentley, who was here last week, and um, met him twice in Israel, and then tonight at the airport. But uh, <laughs> feel a great connection with him and his wife, Joanne, and so he, he, you heard the introduction. Give him a warm welcome again, if you would. Wow, it's a pleasure to be here, and um, we are a little jet lag, and we were just in Saudi Arabia a few days ago, and it's opened for tourism, and so we're going to tell you a little bit about that, but gosh, it's just great to be with you. Thank you for coming out tonight. We want to tell you about what God's doing in the Middle East, things that you're not going to hear on the news. They wouldn't even know how to process it. So are you tired of the bad news, you know? Just feel like you need counseling after watching the evening news. This will be good tonight. Good news from the Middle East. Okay, if we can start, Mo, let's go. Extreme, unwavering, high risk because every soul matters. That's what we're talking about tonight. And we're talking about God's church, Jesus' church in the Middle East. And um, you know this verse. This is a verse that all of us can just rip off from memory. But I ran into your pastor at Caesarea Philippi uh, a while back. And we were talking about uh, Peter's confession of faith. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus said this he, when he congratulated him for knowing the answer. And that was the first one that Peter got right, by the way. Did you ever have someone in your class that, like, always raised their hand, and they sat in the first row, and they always got it right? And Peter did that, but he always got it wrong. He always had them wrong. Finally, he nails it. The Spirit of God reveals it to him. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, what? I will build my church. I will. It's a promise. It's future. It's going to happen. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. So should we be surprised, because Jesus guaranteed it, that the body of Christ is growing faster in the Middle East than ever before. In fact, research says that the fastest growing church in the world right now is in the area of the Middle East where you can lose your life for Christ when you give up Islam and come to Jesus. In fact, in 79, the Ayatollah came in and instituted Sharia law in Iran and said this, we will squash the church. There will never be two religions in Iran. Everyone will be Muslim. Well, how did that work out for him? Not really too good. We knew of five to maybe 25,000 believers in Iran at that time. Today, two million believers in Iran, fastest growing church per capita in the world, in the world. So when the Ayatollah says that, I'm going to squash the church, but Jesus says, I'm going to build the church, who are you going to put your money on? I mean, it's going to be Jesus, right? So this should be no shock, no surprise. Okay, next slide, if you will. So this is us in 1990. Um, we had six children in eight years. It was crazy. We had five teenagers at once. And um, this is us. And, and so let's go to the next one. This is how the kids look now. We survived. Uh, when, we, when God called us in 2001 to go to the mission field after pastoring for 20 years, people said, you can't go, 9-11, they'll kill you, they'll hate you, it's dangerous. And we said, we have five teenagers. It's dangerous in our house. We're used to that. So anyway, but we were sitting around the dinner table one night when all of them were there, which was shocking. And um, 
So we said, hey, let's just talk about how many kids do you want? When you get married, how many kids do you want? So we start going around the table, and I think John Mark said, um, I don't know, one, maybe none. I'm not sure. And then Lindsay said, yeah, I'm not sure I want kids. And so we go around the table, and at the end, we had a net of two. And so I looked at Joanne and said, we have so blown it. They don't even want kids, you know? It's just like, but they grow up and things start to happen. Next slide. And then they started getting married. And all of a sudden, the grandkids came. Four out of six are married. And we're excited about that. And so we have, how many grandkids do we have now? Eight. Eight is great, but nine is fine. We have one on the way. Okay, so a year or two years ago, next slide, please. We hit the jackpot. Uh, they're not triplets. They're Let's see, um, Charlotte is Sarah's uh, daughter, then Theo is Lindsay's, and then River is Josh and Jesse's. And so the family just started to grow, and it took off. And for us that are getting up in years, there's nothing like grandchildren. And I wonder if God in heaven has that same kind of feeling when he looks down and he sees that the gospel spread from the Middle East all around the globe, and guess what? It's coming back, and Muslims are coming to faith in Christ faster than ever. Let's go to the next slide, if we could. <clears throat> so this is a couple of months after 9-11. So I was a pastor. God called us in June of 2001, three months before 9-11, to go into missions. And honestly, I hope I don't offend anyone, but I was a pastor. I thought missionaries were kind of weird a little bit. Just I just wasn't used to that lifestyle. I mean, I loved evangelism, loved the gospel. I just didn't relate to them. God calls us to go and, and be missionaries in the Middle East. So this is a couple of months after 9-11, and my first day, I mean, I guess it's my first day as a missionary. We're in Gaza Strip. And uh, we get there, and my new friend, Hussein, is a former Muslim, and he says, Tom, hey, let's go down to Yasser Arafat's mosque in Gaza City. It's prayer day. It's Friday prayers. We'll share the gospel with Muslims as they come out of the mosque. I said, okay. So it begins, you know? So, so we go on the bus, and there was a lot of hot things going on in Gaza. We see George Bush hanging in effigy and flames and Ariel Sharon, and our driver says, whoops, wrong turn. And so finally, we get down to the mosque, and it's actually going well. But I knew zero about sharing with Muslims. We had a great heart for the Jews. We didn't know that 9-11 would open up the Muslim world like this. And so here we are. I showed up in shorts. You know, I didn't know anything. Uh, there were men and women. And so I saw people hugging. I didn't know it was men with men, women with women. So I'm hugging the men. I'm hugging the women. And, um, and, but they were gracious. And look at that spiritual leader in, in uh, Islam leans into me, you know, and wants to sit by me. And that's when things were going good. And a few minutes later, Hussein said, Tom, hey, I forgot to tell you, but we could get arrested for doing this. This is illegal. But really, everyone should go to jail at least once for sharing their faith, you know, right? And yeah, good, yeah. So, but, it, you know, there were smiles and there was questions and what are you doing here? But then all of a sudden that changed. And all of a sudden the long beards, white skull caps, long white dish dashes showed up. And these were with Hamas, and they had Qurans out, and they were pointing, and we definitely heard the word infidel, and the circle was getting closer, and you could feel it was a hostile environment. 
And my friend Hussein said, um, he pulled me back my ear and he said, Tom, um, this is a bad group. This, this, this is not good. This is Hamas. It's a new terrorist group and they could try to hurt us. And so I just wanted you to be ready. They could, they could even try to kill us. They look angry. And he said, but I'm ready to die for Jesus. And you're a missionary. You're ready to die for Jesus, right? And I said, yes. <laughs> Do you mean now? Like right now, right? And the first thing that went through my mind was this, what a short career, actually, <laughs> you know? It was one day. We never saw him again. And, um, but, you know, obviously God intervened. But I was there for a week with him and saw this passion to go and share the gospel with Muslims no matter what. And I laughed, and he stayed and worked those refugee camps. It's no wonder God is reaching the Muslim world. There are frontline believers that have guts, that have passion, that are not afraid to suffer for Jesus. And it's amazing some of the things that are happening. Okay, next slide, if you would, um, before I get to this. And I know this may be new for you hearing that Muslims are coming to faith in Christ. I mean, you know, I, I grew up, my dad was an FBI agent and organized crime specialist, fought the mafia, so I was born in Chicago, uh, plenty of business there, and, uh, and then Las Vegas. And so, you know, I just, in my house, you were guilty until proven innocent. You know, that's how it was. And so, so any talk about Muslims, well, I mean, they gotta be terrorists, right? And so, uh, we were getting our car fixed. We lived in Colorado Springs. It was up in Denver. They called and said it was done. I went up there. Joanne drops me off to get the car. And I get in. The guy says, you know what? We found another problem. It's going to be an hour. Can you just give us one hour? Once you go across the street, there's a Mediterranean restaurant. Just go over there and just get whatever you want. It's on us. We're sorry we're late. And so I said, okay. So this is like 1999, okay? So I go across the street in this Middle East restaurant, and uh, in come two guys with black leather coats on. They're Arab, they have closely cropped beard, and they're sitting right next to me, and they're whispering in Arabic. So I have my falafel and Diet Pepsi, and I'm listening in, because I'm an FBI kid. We know these things, right? They're up to no good, so I'm gonna listen in and see what they're doing, and as they're talking just quietly in Arabic, finally, Mahmoud just says something in um, English, and he goes, boy, the Lord is amazing, Mohammed, isn't he? And I said, wow, that kind of sounds like what we say as Christians, you know, that's weird. Didn't know, huh, they said those things. So anyway, they go back, and they're whispering in Arabic, and, and a few minutes later, Mohammed said, Mahmoud, Jesus is Lord over Syria, isn't he? And I just looked at them, are you kidding? I had thought they were terrorists. They were gonna blow the state capital up. It's just up the street. And I hear, Jesus is Lord over Syria. And I remember just looking at them and I said, are you guys believers? And they said, yes, are you? And I said, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I used to be until I came in here and judged it. And that was my first former Muslims in the Middle East to meet that love Jesus and since then, oh my gosh, you cannot believe what's happening. More Muslims are coming to faith in Christ in the last decade than in the last 1400 years of Islam. Isn't that amazing? Joanne, come on up. I want my wife Joanne to come up. 
and share this story. Joanne, thank you. Hello, everyone. How are you? Ooh, what a happy crowd we have. Well, how many of you have ever been to Jordan? Raise your hand. Oh, a few of you. Yay. Well, the rest of you, pack your suitcase. Come with me, and let's go on a trip to Jordan. I want you to meet Farah. Farah is a Jordanian woman, and she has a very interesting story. She was raised in a moderate um, Islamic family, but she had one dream in her life, and that was that she wanted to choose her own husband. She did not want an arranged marriage like is typical in her culture. And because she was moderate and she was very progressive, she got a job as a single woman, and she worked in a bank for about six years. The only problem is that Jordan has a law that as a single woman, when you work, they keep back part of every one of your paychecks, and they save that money for you until you get married. Well, again, Farah's hoping to choose her own husband, so time goes on, and you can imagine after six years, she's got a little bit of a nest egg. But then one day, she gets a call from her father, and he says, Farah, I've got horrible news. Your mother has been diagnosed with cancer, and we have no money to pay for her treatments. So I've arranged for you to marry a man this week so that we can get that money that you have saved. Basically, Farah, if you do not marry this man, your mother is going to die. Can you imagine? So Farah was forced to marry this man that's older than her, and the abuse started immediately. She said it got so bad, she got so depressed that she became suicidal. He would do things um, like, for instance, she would try to make a dinner for him, trying to please him, and make it something that he liked the week before, but she would make this meal, he would look at it, and he would come up to her and say, this is disgusting. It's almost as disgusting as you are. And he would take that dinner plate and throw it in the trash can, plate and all, and then he would slap her across the face. The abuse went on and on until, as I said, she became so depressed that she said, I would kill myself if it wasn't for my two sons because what would happen to them if I was gone? So as her desperation grows, now the Syrian refugee war has started. So all the refugees are flooding into her country, and she sees them on the streets. They're poor, they're ragged, their clothes are tattered and dirty. And so she's used to seeing them all around. But one day, she said, I kept running into this one Syrian refugee woman. Everywhere I went, I kept seeing the same woman. And she said, even though her clothes were so tattered and dirty, she had this smile on her face. She was just radiating joy. And she said, it just I couldn't figure it out in my mind. And she said, finally, after seeing her a couple times, I went up to her and said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you should be miserable. Why are you happy? I have more than you have. And that woman beckoned her, and she said, come here. I have a secret. You have a secret? She said, yes. I found Jesus as my Savior. Do you want to hear more? And so Farah, because she was so desperate, went with the Syrian refugee, and long story short, she gave her life to Christ. She said, um, isn't that awesome? Immediately, she said, that depression left. Yeah, there she is in the middle. Does that look like the same woman? Totally different. That is, yeah, go back if we could to the last picture. Look at the difference. And then forward if we could, please. And that is Farah today. She is your sister in Christ. One day you will meet her in heaven and spend all eternity with her, and you can hear the rest of her story. But I will tell you this. After she came to Jesus, she had a dream. 
And it was the day before, or the night before, she was going to get baptized and, and celebrate the Lord's Supper for the first time. And she said, in this dream, there was a room filled with people, and everybody was dressed in bright colors, and they were shining and glowing. And she thought, they must all be followers of Christ. And then she noticed at the side there was a stairway that went up, and she said she walked up that stairway, and at the top was Jesus shining, even brighter than the people were. And he looked at her and he said, Farah, I love you. And he put a gold crown on her head. And then he put a piece of bread in her mouth and said, you belong to me. And then she woke up. And when she did, she realized, oh my gosh, this is the day I'm going to be baptized, the day that I'm going to celebrate Holy Communion. We cannot relate to that, can we? We take some of those privileges for granted. But for Farah, when she was baptized, she said they put her down in that water. And she said, I know that water wasn't holy, but I felt like my was being cleaned from the inside out. She said, I came out of the water and she said, I almost didn't want to come up. And then when I went in the back and they handed me a towel, I, she said, no, I don't want a towel. She said, I did not want that water to leave my body. She put her clothes on over her wet body she didn't, you know, pull the water out of her hair. She said, I knew that I was clean and that I was different. That is the difference that Jesus makes when we are truly desperate, when our life is completely hopeless. Isn't that Amen. awesome? Okay. Next one, if we could. Mo, let's see what this is. Oh, Joanne. So we were just in Saudi Arabia, and so we're leading tours there now. We do tours in Israel. Shockingly, We've been granted the privilege of doing tours in Saudi Arabia, even with all the stuff we write about Muslims coming to faith in Christ. So some Bedouins invited us to come for tea, and they showed up at the beginning part of their ranch, and they were riding camels and Arabian horses and putting on a show, swinging their swords and doing all that. After about 15, 20 minutes there, we realized, where are the women? We don't see any women. This is where they were. You want to tell about what happened when you saw them? Uh, well, you know, while we were with the men and the little boys, they had music playing and they were dancing and they were feeding us tea and fruit. It was just a party, you know, a, a Bedouin party. And as Tom said, we, we noticed there were no women or no little girls. And then I heard whispering, the women are in the tent way like two football fields away this black tent that you can see in the background. So I grabbed one of the gals with me. I said, let's go, let's go meet these sweet women. So we started walking down that way and look at these women. Not only are they in the niqab, which is with just their eyes showing, they are trapped behind a fence. They didn't get invited to the party. They were not allowed to meet the new Americans, the new Westerners that have just been allowed into their country. They were stuck, not only behind these, you know, shrouded in these black veils, they're stuck behind a fence. But we went inside, they invited us in, and you know what they started doing, y'all? Would walk up to him, that was just women, they started whipping up their veils. They wanted us to see them. Don't we all want to be seen for who we are? So do these Muslim women. So I just want to encourage you. I don't know how many Muslims you see around here. Maybe when you go in, you know, somewhere outside of Pensacola, you see Muslims. But please don't be afraid of them. Please don't be afraid. I know that they're intimidating when we see them in their hijabs. And I think we have the misconception that's very common. We hear it everywhere we go that perhaps they dress that way because they don't want us to bother them. They want us to keep our distance. But that can't be further from the truth. Because we cannot forget, first of all, we are all created in the image of God. 
as are these Muslims. And Islam is the problem, not the Muslims. They're trapped in this false religion. And we, as followers of Jesus, are the only ones that can offer truth and hope to them. And trust me, they are so open. And sometimes the more traditionally they're dressed, the more open and more prepared their hearts are. And you never know, perhaps one of them is already having dreams about Jesus. So if you see a Muslim woman, and men, you can do this too. The first thing that we want to encourage you to do is show them that you see them. Don't take your grocery cart and go the other way, <laughs> pretending that you don't. Make eye contact. Smile. You know, say hello if you get a chance. If you don't know what to say, you know, ask them, what country are you from? Do you like hummus? Or yeah. I like hummus or something. You know, just <laughs> try to start a conversation and then try to create a friendship. And believe it or not, you could be the one that could lead a Muslim to Christ. And let me tell you, when they come to Jesus, they are a force to be reckoned with for the kingdom of God. They are. So, Mo, before we go to the next one, let me just set it up. So we're getting ready to go to Saudi Arabia. We have a friend that has an Internet ministry going into Saudi Arabia. He used to be a Wahhabi Muslim. That's radical. And now he's not allowed back in Saudi Arabia because he's a believer, has an online ministry leading people to faith in Christ, answering questions from the Bible, from the Quran, and all that. So he got us in touch with a young lady named Nori, Nora. And Nora had been a believer for a few years. She lives in Saudi Arabia. She has never met a believer face to face, ever. She doesn't know of one. She knows of them online, doesn't know of any. And so our friend was reaching out to her and said, I want you to meet the Doyles. Our friends are coming, and you're going to get a chance to meet believers. And she said, oh, my gosh, I have to get ready for this. I'm so nervous. I've never met other, a brother or sister in Christ. When are they coming this year? And he said, they're coming in three days. And so she said, oh, my gosh, I'm nervous. And so we land in Riyadh, and we're checking into our hotel, and we're going back and forth, doing the texting. And here comes Nora, and she said, I am so excited as she was cabbing it over. She said, I'm literally shaking. She had never met a believer face-to-face, -face, no fellowship. And so she entered the hotel, and it's like her feet are lifting off the ground, running for Joanne. Let's go to the next picture if we have that. This is her meeting Joanne and just so thrilled to embrace. She said, I've never been able to hug another believer ever. And so we spent time with her that evening. She got to meet 24 other believers. And then later on, when we came back through the city, we met with her again and some people that are working in underground ministry. And we just decided to pray one night at the restaurant. It's filled with Muslims, but you just, we don't have to bow our heads. We don't have to fold our hands. We can just pray like I could pray with you, Lord, I pray for my friend, Frank, and would you do this miracle in his life? We can do that. And people just see a conversation. They don't know you're praying. So we start praying. And Nora says, in the middle of the prayer, I've never prayed with a group before. And I'm really nervous. So please forgive me if I mess up. And she starts to pray. And the Holy Spirit came. It was a powerful prayer of a seasoned believer. And I looked at Joanne and I said, <clears throat> you know what? The Holy Spirit is enough more than enough. She hasn't even been around believers, but she's learned from Jesus, and she has gone deep in the Lord. So pray for her. She is, um, and we'll probably, are we able to splice some things off this? Can we, I, as far as me talking, can we cut some things out for later? Okay, 
So she uh, had, uh, she's able to get an Italian passport. Anyway, she wants to be baptized. We're doing a uh, Bible tour in Israel this summer. She's going to go to Italy, come to Israel, and then we're going to baptize her in the Jordan River. So it doesn't get any better than that, right? <laughs> Praise God. Okay, next one, if you would. Oh, wow. <clears throat> this is the miracle of the Mediterranean. How many of you believe uh, Jesus does miracles? How many of you believe that? Okay. Really, that question should never really be on the table for us as believers because we know he does, right? God does miracles. Here's the next question. How many of you expect miracles? How many of you expect miracles? That's the proper question. So this woman here, the tall one, and I'm forgetting her name. What's her Raja. name? <clears throat> Raja lived in Syria. It's the middle of the Syrian war, and uh, it was terrible. Um, she has a son. He's married to a woman. They have a little boy, and his name is Ali. He's turning three. Ali has never spoken. He's so traumatized by the war. It's Syria. There's buildings blown up. There's people being hung in plain sight. He's seen it all. And her son calls one night and says, Mom, <clears throat> we're leaving Syria. We're getting in a rubber raft with a motor. We're going to try to go across the Mediterranean to Turkey, get on the refugee trail, maybe go to Germany, maybe Sweden. We don't know. But we can't stay here. There's no money. I can't get a job. We're out of food. There's no future. It's all war. Today, we saw children drinking out of mud puddles in the street. It's gotten so bad. We got to go. We got to take Ali, and we're going. So they get in a rubber raft, <clears throat> and they start out. They have this little engine or motor, and they get out, and they're out there a few hours, and it ends up they just see all these bright lights coming at them, and they don't know what it is, and finally they realize it's a ship coming at us. And so they get out of the way as fast as they can. They see this big thing go by, and they get out of the way just in time. But after it goes by, seconds later, the wake starts, and it flips that rubber raft up into the air, and they go flying into the Mediterranean. No flashlights, no uh, life jackets, no light, nothing. They're calling for Ali. He doesn't speak, and he doesn't swim. And they're treading water, and they're looking, and they're just crying, help us, Lord, help us, and they can't find him. And so a fisherman hears the cry for help, and he, he revs up. He's doing night fishing, and he, he revs up his, his motor, but it takes him at least 10 minutes to get there. And finally he does, and he sees the couple, and they swim to the boat, and they're just crying, Ali, we couldn't find Ali. We, did, we didn't even see him. We didn't know where he went. And he pulls him into the boat. There's Ali sitting in the boat. <laughs> Ali's there. And they're hugging him and saying, what, how did this happen? The fisherman, he doesn't swim. And he goes, I don't know. He was the first one I saw. He was floating on his back in the water. And they said, but he doesn't swim. And Ali sat up for the first time. And he said to his parents, he spoke. And he said, Jesus was there waiting for me in the water. He said, Mommy, Jesus held me up. And he smiled at me. And do you know from that point on, Ali never stopped speaking. Did you know what the first word he said that unlocked his lips? Jesus. Jesus was there waiting for me in the water. Raja says, the kid has never stopped talking. We wish he would tone it down, actually. He talks all the time, sentences, and tells people, Jesus was there in the water waiting for me. And that night, the family decided, if he's powerful enough to save us in the Mediterranean, He's going to save us in Syria. We're going back. So that family has gone back to Syria. 
And don't you want to follow that little guy's life? Is this the next Apostle Paul? I don't know, but we want to follow him, and he loves the Lord, and so does his family. Amazing miracle in the Mediterranean. Okay, next one. What do we have here? That's we were in Israel when it was announced that the embassy was going to be moved there. It was like 3 in the morning. Our phones started blowing up. We had to get up for a flight the next morning out of Israel. Everybody said, Trump's announcing it. Jerusalem, the embassy is going to be moving. So we threw on our clothes, ran down. It was on David's citadel, the wall, the Tower of David. And there was people from Israel all over running, celebrating, jumping up. Never got kissed by so many Jewish women in my life. It was a celebration. It was awesome to be there. Okay, next one, if you would. Next slide. Thank you. Um, let's, go, let's go to the next one. We may come back to that if we could. This is our friend. We, we not only get to see salvations, we get to see reconciliations. And this is Mohammed. And Mohammed grew up in the Gaza Strip, and he was Muslim. But he came to faith in Christ. And so he told us later, he said, you know, Tom, I decided when I came to Jesus, I wanted to be a full disciple. And I said, okay, what? what What's a full disciple? And he said, I want to do everything that Jesus commanded, not just like pick and choose the things I feel comfortable. I'm in, man. Immediate, radical, costly obedience. I'm in. And so when I came to uh, love your enemies, he said, that was very simple for me because they were across the fence from Gaza. I hated the Jews and I hated Israel. Hated them with the passion. Everything bad in my life was their fault, I'd been told. So it ends up, he gets discipled, gets out of Gaza, lives in the West Bank, and he decided to get the Hebrew Shema on his arm. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Israel's confession of faith. It's their John 3.16, written in Hebrew, on his arm, a former Muslim from Gaza, and he shares that with Jewish people in Israel, and it blows them away. He says, I used to hate you. I'm a Muslim from Gaza, but I met Jesus. He's Jewish, you know, and he saved my life. And look at what he did. He pulled the hatred out of my soul for you, and now I love you, and I'm honored to meet you, you know, pass out on the floor. They can't believe it. This is not a message that they hear or they get to see in Israel. So it's salvations that we get to see, and it's reconciliation, and it's absolutely beautiful. Okay, next slide, if you would. Uh, tell about that one, Joanne. Yes, this is on the Temple Mount in Israel. And as we were, I was saying a few moments ago, really, there is no reason to be afraid of Muslim women. But I think that is a fear that most of us carry, if we're really honest. 9-11, terrorism, all of that points. The blood always, the trail sends to always end with Islam, doesn't it? So when we see a veiled woman, and I always say the women because they stand out more when they're wearing their hijabs, but when we see them, we tend to back up and be afraid. So we were on the Temple Mount, and we had a group with us, and Tom was talking about that very thing, about how God has called us to engage with, you know, with Muslims. And um, as I was sitting there, I saw these two women a little ways away from us, you know, on their cell phones. And I just walked over to them and started talking. Turns out they're sisters, and the one with the black hijab on spoke perfect English. Had this sweet conversation with them. They don't look too scary, do they? So I talked for a couple of minutes to them. And then if you would go to the next picture, please look at that. In two minutes, 
that's how quickly you can engage in conversation that leads to something like this. See, we have to remember that Muslims are from the Middle East, and Middle Easterners are very affectionate. They're very hospitable people. So women, now men, you don't, can't do this, but women, you meet a Muslim woman, you can certainly touch her, and look how she will respond. This happens all over the place. Look at the smile on both of their faces. They love being seen. They love being noticed. You know, you have to also understand that in Islam, women are treated so poorly. You know, their sons have more value than they do. They're about as valuable as a piece of furniture. And so when we as believers, if we pretend we don't see them or if we ignore them, we really are partnering with the enemy and we're reinforcing the lie that they don't matter. But when we see them and try to make a friendship with them, you know, overture to them like that, we are fighting the lie that they've believed their whole life, that they don't matter, that they're invisible, that they are forgotten. So that's partnering with Jesus. Those are gospel seeds of love being planted right there. And you can see they're not intimidating at all. They are looking for affection. Perfect. Okay, next one, if you would. Okay, so that's a Muslim imam we met on the Temple Mount. Looked kind of cranky when we met him. But um, as we started to talk, you know, he warmed up a little bit. And so we just, our group got around him and I said, hey, listen, you're a man of prayer. We, we're people that like to pray. We just want to pray for you. And so the group got around, prayed over this Muslim imam. And afterwards, he didn't know what hit him, but he saw the passion and the love there. And he was actually very gracious and wanted to invite us into his school there. Um, next slide, if you would. Okay, Muslim women are wide open to Jesus. Next one, if you would. Okay, we'll go to this in a second. But first, got to tell you a story from Iran. So we've been privileged to go into Iran and work with the underground church. Um, and I don't like the term smuggling Bibles, you know, because my dad was an FBI he said, if you break the law, I will kill you. So uh, anyway, so we personal deliveries from God, whatever. Uh, but we were able to, the first time to go in, take 300 Bibles in. And there's only three things you can't take in, drugs, weapons, or Bibles, religious articles. So we landed, and there were miracles getting in as Americans. And then finally, we got through the questioning. It was a couple hours of questioning, and God just gave us favor and got us through. Then we get our luggage, and you have to put it on the scanner, and every single piece of luggage in front of us was getting opened. So we're thinking, okay, this would be the time to pray. So like if you ever met anyone that says, you know, my prayers aren't connecting with God, we can solve that in about a minute in Iran. Just take Bibles in, and you'll be under pressure, and your prayers to God, boy, you're going to connect. Anyway... So we're in line, and every bag is getting open, and what's this, and what's this? And <clears throat> finally, it's our turn. So I walk up, and there's a big TV screen there. There's a real large Iranian soldier, speaks English. And I said, do you want me to put my backpack here too? And he said, uh, no, you don't have to put it there. And he goes, where are you from? And I said, America. And he goes, well, what are you doing here? I thought that was an unusual greeting. So anyway, we started talking and <clears throat> put the suitcases up there. And he said, I want to go to America. 
I said, you do? And he said, yes. My cousins live in Los Angeles. There's a quarter of a million Iranians in Los Angeles. They call it Terangelis. And he was uh, telling me about how he wanted to go, and he'd heard about Disneyland, and we just kept talking. And I noticed on the screen the first bag goes, and you can see the rows and the stacks. And But he's not looking at them, and he just keeps asking questions and that. And he said, do you think you can help me get a visa? And I said, let's do it, man. We'll work on it. Give me your thing. And another bag's going through. And then finally, he just says something that I wasn't ready for. He goes, hey, have you ever had an In-N-Out burger, you know, from a California? I wasn't ready for that. And uh, yes, I have. And he goes, I want to do that someday. I said, bro, we will do that in LA sometime. And then finally looks and he goes, oh, you're done. Welcome to Iran. He shook my hand and all the Bibles got in. And as we walked off, everybody else's bags were being opened. And the guy was just gracious. The next time, 500 Bibles get through. And so here we are in this city in um, Shiraz, and we're just walking the streets, meeting people. We had some Bibles covertly that we were giving to people because they were so interested in them. And uh, this guy comes up to me, and he's a little bit older, and he says, "Um, can you come to my house today for dinner? And I said, sure. And he goes, just me and my family. And said, sure, yeah, we'd love to. And so we get there, and there was like about 40 people. The cousins and everybody were there, you know. And so kebabs and that were eating, and they were just super cool people, very nice. And finally, the dinner's done. He takes a chair, sits it down, and sits right in front of me and looks in my eyes and says, I want to talk to you about Jesus. I said, you do? He said, yes. I said, are you Muslim? He said, yes. I said, why do you want to talk about Jesus? And he said, because he's coming to me in dreams. I said, okay, tell me about him. And so we sat, and he told me about the dreams. And these are not like, I had a dream, what did I eat? Must have been bad Taco Bell, or it's nothing like that. It's, this is high definition, I can't shake this, I will always remember this the rest of my life. And he was sharing the dreams, and so we just launched into the gospel and started telling him, you know, what what Jesus says about coming to him and believing and accepting him as Savior and confessing your sins. And and he was so open, the room is packed. And he listened and he said, okay, I want to give my life to Jesus. He looks at his family and he says, anybody want to go with me? And they all raised their hand. And you think, okay, are they all doing that? But he was the father and We prayed, and you could see heads shaking and tears and that, and it was glorious. And so we get back, and we're communicating with them, and his son just kept, like, every day emailing me, oh, the Lord did this, and the Lord did, and we're reading the Bibles, and the Lord did this. But they don't always get the language right, you know, like the transliteration. So he wanted to, to, to tell me how his sisters were doing, that they were on fire for Jesus. So he says, my sisters are hot for Jesus. So, but we knew what he meant, right? And, and so here's this family out in the middle of nowhere. How would we meet them? And they're having dreams. It's just the Lord directing the steps and just intersecting. There's no accidents. There's no word in Hebrew for coincidence. There isn't. And so it just happens. And 
Tell about this woman, Shireen, in Jordan. Yes, and, you know, we love sharing these stories <clears throat> because they elevate Jesus. His name and his renown is being more, made more famous, and that is the desire of our heart, truly. And that's why we share these stories with you, because God is moving so powerfully. And it's not the kind of stuff you hear on the news. And so if we don't share these stories... No one really knows what Jesus is doing. So he is so creative and how he intimately is reaching out to every single soul. Because as Tom said in the beginning, every soul matters. Jesus said that he desires that men, <clears throat> excuse me, should perish apart from knowing him, that all should come to repentance. And that includes Muslims. So this is Shireen, and she is a Syrian refugee. I met her in Jordan. And oh my goodness, when we walked up into her home, and you couldn't even call it a home, it was just falling apart and broken and filthy, you know, hovel, really. But it's all that they can afford to have as a refugee. So we walked in her home, and you can see she is carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders. And as we walked in, she just was a talking and a talking and a talking, you know, in Arabic. And through the translator, she's telling me, I walked with my one daughter-in-law and three grandchildren. I walked from Syria to Jordan with only the things we could carry. And she said, but the rest of my family, I have five other children and all of my grandchildren, they are still trapped in Syria. And she's so fearful for their lives. And yeah, the city that they're from is Homs, H-O-M-S. If you've ever looked that up on the internet, it's like 80% destroyed. It's just, it's horrible. So she's got a right to be afraid. It's understandable. But we went into her home and we began talking. Now, Muslims are taught that, um, that the Bible has been corrupted, that it's been changed. So if we would walk in with a, a copy of God's word in our hands, a wall would immediately come up and they would not listen to a word we said. But on the other hand, we know that this is where the power is, the sword of the spirit, the living word of God, his breath on a page. This is where the power is. So we want to bring God's word to these people. So we've learned to be creative, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with storytelling. And we all love stories, don't we? Isn't that how we communicate? So I began telling stories to Shireen. And so I said, Shireen, can I tell you a true story from the word of God? She said, yes. So tr through the translator, I told her, you know, one day Jesus was in a boat. He had his 12 closest friends with him. And they went on the boat across the lake, and Jesus went in the back of the boat, and he fell asleep. And then all of a sudden, the storm comes up, and the waves are whipping, and the wind is blowing, and water is getting into the boat. And these seasoned fishermen are afraid for their lives. Well, you know how that story goes, right? But doesn't that bring God's word to life? And then Shireen is engaging with God's word, and we started asking questions. You know, what do you like about this story? She said, oh, I feel like I'm in that boat. I'm afraid. I'm afraid for my family. And she went off talking about her family again. But we brought her back to the word of God, started asking more questions. And she said, I need Jesus like they did. I told her another story and another story. And finally, through the translator explaining that Jesus is the only one that can really offer her hope. He is the only one, the Prince of Peace, who can bring shalom into her heart. And so Shireen said, okay, yes, I want to give my life to Jesus. So through that translator, we prayed. Shireen gave her life to Jesus. And this next picture was right after she prayed. Look at the difference. Is that not amazing? Yeah, praise God. Shireen is also your sister in Christ. You'll get to meet her in heaven one day, and you can hear all the details of her story. But what I like to point out 
is that Shireen's circumstances haven't changed, have they? Her family's still trapped in Syria. But now the God of all hope has entered her heart. And for the first time, she has a God that she can pray to that's listening and that answers. And now our leaders are um, following up with her. She's learning to study the Bible. And real quickly, she, her daughter-in-law was standing there, watched the whole thing happen. And she looked at me and she said, I want Jesus too, but I can't pray. My son, who was 14, watching the whole encounter, she said, he will tell my husband. He will tell our neighbors, and I could be killed. And so I said to her, as Tom said, we can pray. We don't have to get on our knees and close our eyes and fold our hands, right? We can just pray like this. And so I said, are you ready? Let's do what your mother-in-law did. Jesus, forgive me for my sin. And she did. She repeated right after. Oh, it was beautiful. She gave her life to Christ, and her face beamed. Do you know what the first thing she said to us was? Do you have a Bible in Arabic? So we went out. Of course we do. We went out to the van, and we got a, a Bible. And do you know what she did, y'all? We can't even relate to this in our culture. How many Bibles do you have at home or on your phone, right? She took that Bible. Before she took the Bible, she's looking around. No one was looking. She took it, and she hid it in the folds of her hijab so that no one would see it. So she, too, is being discipled by our leaders in Jordan. There may be, is there one more picture here? Or is that it? Yeah. No, that's it. Anyway. Amazing. So one of the things we do, and Pastor, we'd be thrilled to do this. Maybe we can do a mission trip to the Middle East. There's a lot of things we can do. We can do women's ministry. Joanne leads the women's ministry of uh, Uncharted. It's called Not Forgotten. Muslim women are not forgotten. And you can do women's events, or we do a medical clinic. We do an eyeglass clinic. We have an eye refractor and uh, bring in like 5,000 pairs of glasses. And we go in a Muslim village. It's 100% Muslim, but they need glasses. So whether it's in the West Bank or Jordan, and we have them try on glasses, you know, and, and we have them read John 3.16 in Arabic. And so they read it. And then we say, okay, well, let's try the other glasses, better or worse. <laughs> Try it again, you know? And so we have them read it seven times. And then conversations start. And all of a sudden, they want to know more. And uh, it's amazing some of the things that we've seen happen. Let's go on to another picture, if we could. Let's keep going. OK, we'll skip the video, if we can. I think we won't have enough to. Oh, yeah, you got to hear this one. Oh, my gosh. So this is Nuri. She, is, um, she lives in Jordan. And um, she was Muslim. She's a nurse. And she was 26 years old, but she had a dark side to her. She was demonized. And every night, the demons would manifest themselves. And her father was an imam. Her mother was very religious. She was, like, normal during the day. And at night, throwing dishes, screaming, profanities. The family was afraid of her. They didn't know what to do. And this would go on day after day after day. And nobody at work ever knew about that dark side until finally one day, she confided in a doctor and said, I got a problem. As he said, you're just my favorite nurse up here. I have a problem. And he, she told him what it was, the jinns, the genies. Have you seen Aladdin? The genie is a jinn. That's a demon. And uh, that's, I have them. They come to me at night, and they take over, and I'm, I'm you know, powerless. I can't do anything. What do I do? And this Muslim doctor looks at her straight in the eyes and says, you need to find a Christian pastor. And she said, you're Muslim. He said, yeah, I know, and so are you. But do you know any Muslim imams helping with demons? 
How about your dad? Did he help you? Well, no. You need to find a Christian pastor. So she did. And she looked. She went to a church, and they turned her away. They were afraid because it was a Muslim area, afraid of blowback. She went to another church. They wouldn't see her. Finally, the next day, she went to one more church. Okay, God, if you're really there and you're going to help me, make it be the next church. It happened to be one of our national leaders. He and his wife prayed with her, and the demons were gone. And they said, listen, they're going to come right back. Your only defense is Jesus. And willingly, she gave her life to Jesus. Amen. I mean, she was turned around, okay? Interestingly enough, her father died like that day or the next day. It was really close. They get through the funeral. She is going to work. She is at noon getting discipled, and then she comes home. And finally, after weeks, she tells her mother, you've noticed a difference in me. Yes, I have. And she said, I have Jesus in my life. Well, her mother exploded, started screaming at her, slapping her. I hate you. Your father would be so sickened by this. I can't believe he would disgrace us like this. And this treatment went on and on and on. Go to work, go to noon uh, Bible study. After work, come home. Her mama would cook dinner, yell at her, hates her, all of that. Finally, just to get away, she would go in her room, and she started a Facebook account with a cover name on it. And uh, she would just reach out and just say to people, have you ever wondered about this in the Quran? Well, the Bible says this. And she was just starting to share things she was learning in Bible study. Her national leader said, okay, within a couple of weeks, she had like 500 followers and people sending questions every day, things they were thinking about. Treatment goes on with her mom like that for two months. I hate you, slap her. She'd go in the room. She'd get on Facebook. That was her outlet, answering questions from just the Word of God that she'd learned that day. And one night, she's on Facebook, and her mother's name goes across the screen. Her mother doesn't know it's her daughter in the other room on Facebook, but she got on Facebook, and she saw this Nori, and she just started to ask questions. And she said at that point, she wanted to run out of the room, go hug her mom and say, it's Jesus. He's going to help you. The Holy Spirit said, stick to the gospel. This could go sideways. Stick to the gospel. Night after night, she'd come home. The mom's still yelling at her. She goes in the room, locks the door. The mom goes in the other room, and she's asking questions. Doesn't know it's her daughter in the next room. And finally, this goes on for a month or so. And one night, Nuri said it was so sad, her mom's name pops up, and it says this. Her mom said, I want so much what my daughter has, but I'm so afraid. I'm just so afraid. She wanted to run out the room, hug her mom, lead her to Christ. The Holy Spirit said, stick to the gospel, stick to the gospel. She did, online, lead her mother to Christ that night. I mean, is this like a movie or something? She wants to go tell her. The Holy Spirit says, wait. So a week later, the pastor says, we're doing baptism next week. And the Spirit said, tell her now. So she went home, told her mom, and said, I'm going to get baptized. I just want you to know. And her mom said, I am so proud of you. I am so thankful. Please forgive me for yelling and hitting you. I found Jesus, too. And she said, I know, it was me <laughs> that led you to faith. What? Couldn't believe it. And so the next week, she was in the first row, clapping for Nuri as she was baptized. 
And as they left the church building, she said, you know what? Next week, I want to be baptized. And the pastor heard that. And you know, those pastors are sneaky, aren't they, pastor? There's still water in the tank. Let's go back. And she got baptized the same day that her daughter did. And they love Jesus. She is a force on Facebook. There are thousands that follow her. She's just speaking the word of God and just telling them things that she's learned. So isn't that a powerful story, what God's done? Amen. Okay, next one. Let's see. What do we have? What time do we? We probably better get ready to close and take a story. How about one from America? I'll tell a story from how about the one, well, one that thing family? I think yeah. that's interesting to note is that when they are on that side of the ocean, the desperation is at you know it's it's zenith, it's so high. They come over here, and if we do not if we do not engage them in friendship right away, then they tend to you know if they maybe don't go to the mosque from in their home country, they will when they come here because they want you know community, they want friendship, and then all of a sudden they start getting food and shelter and jobs. And they're not quite as desperate. So that we have found it's actually harder to reach them with the gospel here in the United States than it is over there on the other side of the ocean. But what we've noticed is handouts is not always the way. We've done a lot of food distribution and different things here in the States. And that's great when the refugees first come over, but then they learn to keep putting their hand out for more. What we have found that they lack more than anything is friendship. And so if we can befriend them, oh my goodness, it is amazing what can happen. So gosh, about four years ago, our youngest daughter, Sarah, had a baby, a little Bennett. He was just perfect and precious. And he was about a week old, and all of a sudden, Sarah got really sick. And what turned out, what happened is she had a kidney stone that got lodged. And she had a high fever. We ended up rushing her to the emergency room. And praise God that there was a urologist there that knew that what was going on. And she said, we need to get her in surgery now. She could go septic at any, any moment. This is dangerous. And she's telling Sarah's husband and Tom and I and, and you know, her husband's dad what's going on. And we're just all like, we couldn't even believe this. It was, I mean, the baby's one week old. So they take her into surgery. It's about 930 at night. And as they wheel her in, we go into the waiting room. And there's no one there, not one nurse, not one staff person, no one, except for two veiled Muslim women. And then all of us. And I, I literally, I said to myself, Lord, not now. <laughs> I can't do this. I need to be praying for Sarah. And it was an unaudible voice, a whisper that was so loud it was audible. Do you know what I mean? And he said, Joanne, the Lord said, Joanne, you go talk to those women. I will call people to pray for Sarah. So I went over to those women, and the mom was trembling, not even shaking, trembling. Do you know what I'm saying? And she had a husband that was in surgery. It was supposed to be a two-hour procedure. Eight hours later, she's still waiting. They haven't come up out to give her an update or anything. He had a um, rod in his back that broke, and they were supposed to just repair it. Well, anyway, I... I told them what we, you know, I said, can I pray for you? And they said, yes. By the way, I've never had a Muslim say no to prayer. They will always say yes. Now they'll watch you when you pray. They'll keep their eyes open to see what you're doing, but they're not used to conversational prayer. But I asked these women, can I pray for your husband? And they said, yes, please. I grabbed their hands and I prayed for him in Jesus name. 
And as soon as we finished praying, it wasn't two minutes later, the doctor walked out and said, we had to replace the rod, and that's why it took so long, blah, 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 blah. And they go off, and we, she was just so happy. And she, as she walked out, I thought, darn it, I always try to get people's contact information. I wasn't even thinking, of course, I'm so concerned about Sarah. So they go off, and then a little while later, the doctor comes out from Sarah's surgery, and they said she went septic. We're going to have to put her in ICU, and, you know, we're just all like, oh, no. And so we go out. We see her. Her head had swollen so much, and we go into ICU, and there she is hooked up to all these monitors and all this stuff, and guess whose room is next door to hers? And there we are with Amal and her husband, Praise God. He really did raise people up around the world praying for her. Some of our leaders all over were praying for Sarah. She's doing great now. She just had her third baby a, a month ago, actually. Um, but then they got transferred down to, you know, the main floor. Their rooms are right next to each other again. So we're having conversations with Amal and her husband. Turns out he's a mullah from Medina. A mullah trains the imams. And so we were in their home, and we had the chance to share Jesus with them. And this mullah who trains from Medina in Saudi Arabia, who trains imams, said, you know, I've always really wondered if Islam was really the way. Can you believe that? Now, they did not pray to receive Jesus, but they were so open. They listened to every single word that we said, and God's word never returns to him void, does it? It will always accomplish what God desires it to. Time went on, and they have walked, you know, out of our life. They moved away, and we've lost contact. All of a sudden, you start dialing these numbers, and they don't work anymore. Sometimes that happens. They may be off our radar, but they're never off God's radar. So we are praying that one day we will meet Amal and her husband in heaven, that God will bring others, other brave people to share the gospel with them, not intimidated by her hijab. Amen. So we have this saying in our ministry uncharted, the Muslims are coming, the Muslims are coming, the Muslims are here. And what are we going to do about it? So are we going to marginalize them, ignore them? Jesus wants us to reach them. He's quite capable of building his church among Muslims that come to faith in Christ. And they're around us. And they're open like never before. The, uh, the dreams that are coming. We just had a team that came in from Saudi Arabia to Jordan. 38 new believers. And they didn't know each other, but they came to get some training on how to do the underground church. They came to Jordan to get it. Our national leader asked them, by the way, how many of you had a dream about Jesus before you found him, before you got the word and understood it? All 38 of them. It's just happening all over. So anyway, we lived in Colorado for 20 years, and God called us to move back to Dallas, Texas about eight years ago. And I remember the first summer, man, I was struggling. The humidity. I mean, we lived at 7,500 feet in Colorado, the mountains, short, shorts and a sweatshirt. And then we moved to Dallas. Oy vey. The heat, the humidity. And I just wasn't feeling good. And I, I don't like being in the office. We're field people. We like being out there and had this long day. And it was just, I just felt like I didn't get anything done. So I got in the car and I'm taking off to go get you in. We're going to go to dinner. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, I have to drive all the way across town in the restaurants this way. I should have left like at least an hour ago. And I get up on the freeway, and it says on our Honda, six miles till empty. And so I just went, oh, Lord, come on, can I get a break today, you know? And so I pull off, and there's three gas stations. I'll do the FINA, and I drive up. I stick my card in, and it says must-see cashier. So then, again, Lord, come on, man, I'm doing your work. Yeah. So anyway, 
you know, like he's going to guilt into doing something. So anyway, I, I walk in, and there's this woman, and she's a Muslim, and she's standing there. And I gave her my card, and I said, that doesn't work on the pump. She goes, okay. And I said, wow, you're Muslim. We work in the Middle East, and we're there all the time, and we love your people. We're doing humanitarian stuff. Didn't say sharing the gospel. Don't want to lead with that. And um, so I said, yeah, we're all over the place. Uh, where are you from? And she goes, you go to the Middle East a lot? I said, yeah. And she goes, well, then you have to guess. I said, oh, okay, Egypt. She said, nope, Saudi Arabia. And I said, wow, that is so cool. I've always wanted to go there. And so anyway, we're talking, and then all of a sudden I thought, I'm just going to go for it. And I said, you know what? I'm a writer, and I write books on the Middle East and uh, wrote a book about your people. God is honoring your people, the Muslims. She goes, he is? I said, yeah, he is. He's coming to them in dreams. And she said, you wrote a book about Muslims having dreams about Jesus? And I said, well, yes, I did. And she goes, huh, because I've been having dreams about Jesus. And I said, excuse me a second. Forgive me, God, for all that whining. I know why I'm here now. And so I ran out and got the book and said, you know, hey, we'll talk about it later. And she started flipping through. And um, ended up, I went off, we had dinner, we were on time, and two days later, coming by, going back to the ministry center, and I thought, oh man, I need to get gas. And I thought, ooh, I'm going to stop at that station. And then I go in, and uh, I thought, I'm going to use that pump. And I stuck the card in, worked perfectly. See, I don't think it was a card malfunction. I think it was an order from God. It didn't say, please see cashier. It said, must see cashier. So I go in, and there's Ruia, and she's reading the book. She's halfway through, and she goes, this book is like my life. I said, the book is like your life? The, the dreams and visions? Well, yeah, it's my life. And I said, well, how long have you been having dreams about Jesus? And she said, for at least 30 years now. And I said, 30 years? Did you ever talk to a Christian? Did you ever, like, stop at a church and ask them, what does this mean? And she goes, yes, plenty of times. I stopped at churches and tried to ask people questions. It was, I don't know what it was weird. It was like, maybe they were afraid of me because I was a Muslim or something. And I said, well, I can't imagine that. But anyway, uh, and I said, really? And she goes, but I knew this because Jesus would put his arm around me in the dream. And I never felt so safe with the man in my life. And he loved me. And I knew this. If he loved me so much, one of these days, he was coming for me. And I said, Ruia, I'm thinking today is that day. I mean, I think it's here. It's the day. And I shared verses with her from the New Testament. Salvation verses, just simple. John 3.16 the Romans Road, and she was ready, and we held hands in the Fina gas station, and she prayed to receive Jesus, the same Jesus she was looking for for over 30 years, and it was glorious. And you know what I thought about that? I thought, isn't that amazing that we work in the Hope Center that has over 50 ministries there, and here's a Muslim woman just blocks away, and she can't find Jesus. There's a lot of Rawiyas out there. There's a lot of people that are desperate, and they're searching, and their heart is open. The Muslims are coming. The Muslims are coming. The Muslims are here. And what are we going to do about it, church? Let's pray. Father, thank you for moving so powerfully. You love us. 
you don't have to use us, but you choose to use us, and we're honored and humbled by that. So, Father, I pray you would break our hearts for all lost people, and we'd never go by a mosque where we don't pray for everyone there or see a Muslim where we don't just pray, Lord, get them a Bible. Let me share with them. Uh, send them a Jesus dream. Do something. They're open. They're looking. They're searching. And they need you so badly. So, Father, I pray you would break our hearts for lost Muslims. It's one-fifth of the population around the world. And they're growing, but they're open. The most open people group on the planet to you, Jesus. Use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you. Thanks for letting us be with you tonight. All right, let's stand together. And before we're dismissed... Um, Tom has a lot of his books out there. You're welcome to check them out. And a couple of takeaways from tonight. One, God loves everybody. And if you ever go to Iran, wear an In-N-Out Burger t-shirt. That's what I'm thinking. That's another takeaway. <laughs>